everybody. Welcome to the Film for Fans podcast, the podcast from movie fans for movie fans. I am your host, Ryan Dunley. That is my co-host, Rob Dunham. Hey, and he actually said co-host this time. The last couple of weeks, he's just said, that's Rob Dunham, and I've kind of felt a little, I don't know, a little <laughs> underappreciated. But, but I went to the union, and I demanded that they have him include that in his pre-podcast uh, monologue, and they yeah. listened to me. <laughs> it is... Uh, <laughs> It is contractually obligated based on the rules of the uh, <laughs> academy. It was yes. It was actually funny because I listened to an, an old episode of this Mission Impossible podcast that I followed, uh-huh. um, where they were interviewing Christopher McQuarrie, who is one of the directors in the series, and he was talking like he went through in detail like what you need to do to get a writer's credit. Mm. <laughs> like you have to have written like one third of the script including like a bunch of these things and have to like or like significant work on a specific care. it's really really bizarre so mm. basically he did not he did not get a writer's credit on ghost protocol even though he wrote a decent amount of it <laughs> yeah because there's actual regulations so per regulations rob dunham is now known as co-host rob dunham yeah, I'd even settle for assistant to the regional co-host. <laughs> but this is not an office podcast. This is not an office podcast. So that would be a fun podcast. <laughs> I think Pam Pam has that one nailed down, though. So I think it's true. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get started. Uh, we have since we're recording this. In case uh, you're not aware, we're recording this on Sunday night, which we normally record like Thursday or Friday. And as a result, we have two weeks worth of box offices to talk about. Uh, We'll give you a rundown in two weeks worth of box offices, as well as the movies that came out this past weekend. We'll review the Flash movie, and we will get the fifth part of our Mission Impossible series, Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, and of course, our watch list. All right, Rob, let's get started with the box office. So... Uh, previous weekend of this, the weekend of June 16th and 18th, we had uh, Flash debut, we had Elemental debut, and uh, to say these movies were not well-received at the box office would be an understatement. Uh, Flash did come in at number one two weekends ago at $55 million. Ooh. Yeah. $55 million. Yeesh. And this was this was interesting because I haven't done this often. I might start doing this more often. But Ryan and I, over the weekend, uh, were sending messages back and forth about how this movie was tracking. Because yeah. if you you pay attention to like Box Office Mojo, Hollywood Reporter, some other um, websites like that, they'll give projections. And this movie was projected at like eighty to ninety, and then like the projections just kept going down. It was and then down. it was like seventy five, and, and then it was sixty five, and yeah. it- comes in at 55 because they kept on expecting more people i think to show up for like the like the main event showings on like friday saturday like night and stuff and we went and saw this on a friday night yeah like 9 30 friday night and, and there was almost no one there which you would expect like the second the first full night a movie is open like this um a major superhero movie that you you know if you were interested in it you would expect that theater to be full yeah and i think there are about 10 people in it counting us yeah 
so uh we had you know we had done our projections about how much the movie would make and to say that i was wrong would be yeah <laughs> i predicted 100 and it made almost half of that <laughs> it made it almost made 100 in two weeks <laughs> yeah no it didn't <laughs> uh and you were you were what sixty five or seventy five? Yeah, so I, I got close on the two week total there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Also disappointing in the box office is the Disney Pixar movie Elemental came in second at twenty nine million. That is not a good showing for a Pixar movie. Yeah, I, I all I can think is that people, you know, it 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 really seems like a lot of people have lost faith in Pixar. And they're not really interested in going to, out to check out something that's not already established yeah. as a property. Um, one thing that was very interesting to me about this that I was very surprised by that I didn't know going into it. And I kind of feel like if I if some people had known, it might have actually gotten them out to the movie as crazy as it sounds. The, so there's always a short before these movies. Um, it's a Pixar thing. And the short before this movie was uh, an additional story from Up. Mm. with uh the grandfather and doug the dog interesting and i didn't even know that was gonna happen and it was really funny it was really well done it's about it was a little less than 10 minutes and i feel like that's something that would have interested people to know about and i don't think i saw anything about that happening yeah before well, we there's kind of two two things with this one. One, it didn't feel like it was really heavily promoted, which is strange. But also, I think, I think the Disney fatigue and and where Disney is at right now has really tarnished the Pixar brand. Um, if I were to guess on that front, um, yeah. So it's interesting. Uh We'll get to that when we talk about it the next week. It did not have a huge drop off like you might expect in week two. So that might mean that more people are giving it a chance in the second weekend. Uh, but still, it's going to be well below its hopeful yeah. projections. Yeah. Uh, rounding out the top five for June 16th through 18th, uh, number three came in uh, Spider Man Across the Spider Verse at 27 million. Uh, that was its third week. In the box office, it is now 200. As of that weekend, it was 279 million. Uh, number four was Transformers Rise of the Beasts at 20.6 million. That had a 66% drop off from week one to week two. So, as you said, the cutoff is like 50, 55. 55 would be average drop off, and 50 would be on the slightly better side of average. This one's 66% drop off. So pretty big drop off for yeah, and you would you would think that would be really depressing for the people who made Transformers, except for what happened to the Flash, which we'll get to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, rounding out top five, Little Mermaid came in at uh, eleven million. So not listed in the top five was the Blackening, which yeah. also debuted and did not do super well. Yes. Um, all, all across the, uh, the movies, the box office in general made about 163 million, which was pretty equivalent to the week before, which did 161 million. Um, this past weekend, which we are coming to an end of right now, June 23rd through 25th, really fascinating box office results here. 
Uh, number one this weekend, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse in week three. So that was fascinating. It was back up to number one, leaping over two movies in their second week and two movies in their debut week to mm. go back into number one at 19.3 million at the box office. Uh, Elemental stayed at number two at uh, 18.4 million, which is an only a 37% drop off. So it did much better week two than one might anticipate. Uh, so that is at least a somewhat positive sign, but still after two weeks, it's only made 65 million. Uh, the Flash in week two, number three at 15.2 million a 72.3% drop off from week one. Yeesh. Yeah, that's brutal. <laughs> um, number four in the box office, um, the only new entrant to make the top five, uh, No Hard Feelings at 15.1, and Transformers Rise of the Beast came in fifth at 11.6. Uh, wow. Uh I knew I, I suspected Flash would have a pretty big drop off because everything that came out after week one was extremely negative. <laughs> no, I mean, some of it directed at the movie itself, but a lot of it directed at just headlining how bad it did in the box office, which is not probably going to drive pe more people to go see the movie. What yeah. are your thoughts here? Uh, one thing that's fascinating to me is that. Um... Although the total number, what what was the total? What's the total number? Oh, for the you, overall box office, yeah, yeah, it was like 120 million. So it wasn't wasn't ne wasn't near the last couple of weeks, but it was so pretty much evenly distributed. Yeah, which um, there's not often that you run into a scenario where you've got a solid six or seven movies that are kind of all different um, thematically and in genre, yeah. like we do now in the box office. So there's really something for everybody to go see right now, which is a pretty fascinating thing, a cool thing, I think. Um, and one of the things I love about movies, and I'm glad that we're back in the mm -hmm. back in the time frame where we can have a broad spectrum of movies being made. Yeah, and there is no there is no like major headlining blockbuster release this week. So it was kind of it kind of was like. It, it evened out the split because there was not anything dominating the box office. It evened out the take uh, between all the movies that were out. So if you wanted to go see a movie this weekend, you just, you know, picked based on your mood. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, one, one movie I didn't hear you say, but I know you have something to say about is mm -hmm. um, Asteroid City. Yes. The Anderson movie. Yes. And uh, that brings me to, uh, the movies that opened this past weekend and there were two movies that opened this past weekend and number one was asteroid city the new west anderson film and uh that made nine million in the box office and uh basically asteroid city is um sorry i just had it up okay asteroid city is a movie that uh storyline is following a, a writer on his world famous fictional play 
about a grieving father who travels his tech-obsessed family with his tech-obsessed family to a small rural asteroid city to compete in a junior stargazing event, only to have his worldview disrupted forever. So that's the plot. Uh, the cast is huge. Uh, yeah, the cast is just everyone. Jason Schwartzman, <laughs> Scarlett Johansson, Tom Hanks, Jeffrey Wright, Brian Cranston, Edward Norton, Jake Ryan, Grace Edwards, Maya Hawk, Rupert Friend, Hope Davis, Liev Shriver. I could keep going, but I'm not going to. <laughs> and Jeff Goldblum is also in it. What was briefly. that? Jeff Goldblum is also in it briefly. Yeah. Uh, and of course, Wes Anderson, one of our favorites on the podcast, uh, directs this one. Now, uh, it did finish just outside the top five at $9 million. However, that is very good for a Wes Anderson opening weekend. First of all, the movie only appeared in uh, a little over, let me pull it up here, uh, 1,600 locations, as opposed to uh, a big movie like The Flash or a big movie like Guardians of the Galaxy would probably appear in about 4,200 theaters. So probably less than half of the theaters that a lot of other movies would open yeah, to. There's, I think there. I think I saw when when I subscribed to Movie Pass, I was looking up some of the stats. I think there's a little bit over 5,000 active movie theaters in the country. Yeah. So to to only be in about a, a 20% of them and still yeah. come up with $9 million, pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it did open, it has a limited opening release like last week in very select locations. So it's technically made 10.2 million at this point, but basically 9 million from its, its wider opening weekend. Um, interesting stats here 64% of moviegoers were 35 years or younger for this hmm. movie. So that's kind of fascinating. Um, I can say that in, in the showing I was at, there were several like 20 something people there yeah and they seem to be enjoying it so that was pretty cool today. it was uh it was better the previous best weekend for a wes anderson movie was uh week four of grand budapest hotel hmm. which did 8.5 million. wow yeah so that was what we had before um a lot of his movies don't have an initial wide release and they kind of like slowly roll out a little bit more as they go on. But a uh, really good showing for uh, for Asteroid City. The other one that came out this uh, past weekend was uh, No Hard Feelings. That is the comedy starring Jennifer Lawrence and uh, Andrew Bart Feldman. Uh, Matthew Broderick is in it as well. And this movie... Uh, plot of this is on the brink of losing her home maddie finds an intriguing job listing helicopter parents looking for someone to bring their introverted 19 year old son out of his shell before college she has one summer to make him a man or die trying yes so that is the comedy from jennifer lawrence uh that made 15 million in its opening weekend so that's a pretty good showing for a comedy yeah, I think going back to Asteroid City, one thing that's very fascinating to me about his movies is we have all these people listed as being involved in it, but they all take like less money than they would normally make. Yeah, uh, to be in his movies because they enjoy his style so much. Um, you you couldn't get a cast like this in like a big budget movie because no. they would they would demand um like the 
the line that they're supposed to get and it would be impossible budget wise. So it's pretty cool that there's still some directors out there who have that kind of sway or pull um, in the community that people so desperately want to be a part of the movies. And I would, um, having seen this, like for sure, like right from the very beginning, you can tell it's his movie. Like, and then in the first minute of the movie, you can tell Um, the Wes Anderson movie. And that's one thing I love about him. I was trying to find the budget for it, but for some reason it's not listed here. But these are not, these are not also not huge, huge budgets, huge budget movies. Um, yeah, for some reason I don't have a box office budget on that one. But anyway, um, yeah, it's it's really fascinating. He has his own unique style, has his own unique way of doing things. And so they all feel like Wes Anderson movies, but there's enough variations around the theme that um they're still almost always worth worth checking out yeah they all seem to have like a pretty unique setting that has its own idiosyncrasies for each different movie yeah and and each of his movies while they all the idiosyncrasies of the storytelling and thing are from a similar genre they all have their own kind of individually unique flair to them uh so i like it uh, you do have to one thing i mean we've talked about wes anderson before so we don't have to really rehash this too much but like you have to understand you have to ha- almost have a gateway into wes anderson because he's very different than almost anything else the average moviegoer is used to watching and so you kind of have to get used to his style and once you get used to it then either you usually you either really appreciate it and really like them or you just like this guy's not for me <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah. Um, so if you uh, if you haven't checked out either of those two movies, those are your new ones for this week. Um, they'll still be in in the next weekend. Uh, of course, uh, when we get to our, our podcast in, in the next few days uh, or later this week, we will preview, of course, the infamous Indiana Jones movie will be coming up on our next podcast. We'll preview that. Uh, but that will be coming up next weekend. So you still got time to see some of these movies. Uh, now let's uh, let's turn our attention to the Flash itself. We both had the opportunity to see the Flash, and um, I thought we'd just uh, spend a few moments breaking it down. Uh, so, aside from all of the the hoopla surrounding the movie, let's get to the actual movie about the Flash. Um, give me your initial thoughts, initial impressions. We'll do spoiler free for the moment, like your experience watching the movie. Hmm. Um. I didn't think it was as bad as it's been received, <laughs> which yeah. I, I think is an unfortunate um, circumstance or consequence of just all the drama around mm-hmm. the the people involved in the movie. Um, I was kind of surprised to see Wonder Woman actually did show up in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> she had as meaningless an appearance in that movie as she did. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but I, I felt like she didn't really she didn't add anything but she didn't really take away anything either so yeah just kind of there to be there um i thought overall the story might have been a bit um i don't know a bit overthought at times but i i i thought the writing was pretty good i wouldn't say it was great um it's really hard to write these stories where you're 
crossing timelines. Uh, I think that uh, Into the Spider-Verse, Across the Spider-Verse has done some of the best work in this field. Um, I think that uh, the Avengers did a pretty good job with some some of these concepts, especially in uh, the new Spider-Man movie. But I'm not I'm not sure if they really got to what they were trying to get to um, in the Flash. Yeah, maybe there there was, and, and I've said this before that I think a lot of times it's really easy to tell if a movie is genuine with its emotion or if it's trying to make you feel something that's not really happening. And I mm-hmm. felt more the latter mm-hmm. watching this movie than the former. Yeah. That, that they were trying to make you feel a certain way, but that it just wasn't getting there mm-hmm. in some way. Yeah. I will say I was entertained by this movie. I mean, I found it entertaining. Uh, I, I will, when we get down to it, I definitely had some issues with it, but I found it entertaining and enjoyable to watch. Uh, so that's always the bench, the benchmark. I am not like comic book guru master, like super care about the integrity of all the characters. Uh, so that's not me. Uh, so I was able to, to kind of like go in with fairly, with not super high expectations and just uh, hoping the movie was enjoyable and I did find it enjoyable um, I think particularly I thought Ezra Miller uh, acted very well like I thought his acting was uh, was pretty good in the movie I thought uh, there were genuinely funny and humorous moments to it uh, it felt like a movie that had been chopped a lot had chopped and been put together it it felt like that it felt like a movie that had been chopped up and cut up uh the thing to remember is this movie has been in production under three different studio heads and whenever you have that kind of changeover and this being one of the high focus movies for each one of those studio heads uh that's going to eventually trickle down into the film itself there's no way around it. it it has to and this is certainly the case and that's certainly the case since James Gunn came on and uh, had previously announced that Henry Cavill's Spider-Man and Gal Gadot's uh, Wonder Woman would not be coming back. Uh, and with all of the turmoil up in the air, like you, it had the feel of a movie that had been had been chopped up and re-edited and, and, and things were cut out and things were added. And so it did feel it feel it felt choppy. Yeah. I, I think Ezra Miller did a really good job of um, portraying two different versions of the same character. Yeah. I think he did enough in variation between the two for it to be worthwhile. Mm-hmm. I will give, I will give them credit for that. Okay. So that's uh that's a little bit of our high level thoughts. Let's, let's break down the specifics. Um, what did you feel like were some strengths of the movie uh, specifically? So I, I went into the movie thinking um, and I'd said in the in the preview that I thought one of the things that would probably come out really strong in this movie was um, Michael Keaton. And I felt that that was definitely the case. Yes, um, I think he was fantastic in this movie. And you could tell that he loves that character because um, he was probably the most emotionally believable character in the movie. 
Yeah. For me. And I think a lot of that was his personal investment in the character of Batman. Um, and it was, it was pretty fascinating to see him as this old disgruntled shaggy, <laughs> like dude, uh, but who's trying to explain these scientific concepts to, <laughs> yeah, to these guys uh, about how space and time works, and they're really just not getting it. And he's like, "All right, I'm just going to show you this bowl of spaghetti, <laughs> and yeah. we'll tell you about it that way." Um, I thought the writing for his character was pretty good, and I thought he did a really good job of acting the character. Yeah, uh, Michael Keaton was obviously the standout for this one. His performance was great. Uh, seeing him back as Batman was great. The way they kind of introduced him and introduced the character was kind of funny and interesting. Um, I I liked I liked a lot of the humor in there. There was there was kind of it was a little bit juvenile, but there was kind of there was kind of some fun to to the fact that the humor was somewhat juvenile. Um, I I enjoyed. Uh, <laughs> I enjoyed the interesting I I don't know that I've I've necessarily heard that kind of take on the the timeline parallel timeline thing uh so that was kind of intriguing uh it also when you think about it is a little bit like eh, anything can happen <laughs> so <laughs> it's less like a cohesive philosophy uh a la back to the future where you had a very distinct timeline, very distinct rules uh, to follow. This one, it was kind of like, yeah, when you break one end of it, you actually break both of ends of it, and who knows what's going to happen. Uh, so that's kind of intriguing on a certain end. It also just means that there just ends up being no rules about <laughs> about that, which I think you end up, which is why they can basically reshoot the entire ending, and it's still technically a work according to their storyline. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, yeah. So those I would say those are the main things that I liked about it. Uh, whereas, what what did you feel that didn't work so well for the movie? Like well, I already mentioned it briefly in like the big overview, but just there wasn't. I didn't feel there was as much emotional depth in the movie as they were trying to create, and when you're trying to tell a story like a big overarching story about a superhero like that you kind of have to have that and that's one thing that marvel succeeded so well at with a lot of their movies yeah. is building in realistic emotion real human emotion um it makes the characters relatable to you even though they've got these superpowers uh this movie was definitely more and you said more bent towards probably the humor side of things than serious side of things it's not a bad thing um we've seen movies succeed doing that but i just don't think that tonally it got i don't think tonally it arrived where they wanted it to at least maybe where they started out wanting it to arrive yeah you said maybe that changed when they you know chopped it up a little bit and took it a different direction yeah i would say there there are kind of three things that stuck out to me First and foremost, one I kind of mentioned earlier is that it felt like it had been chopped. And by that, I mean, like they'd cut scenes out here, added this back in, changed this, moved this around. And so it has the feel of a story that's kind of skipping 
and jumping around. And there's this little bit here that doesn't connect to anything. There's this little bit here. There's stuff that just kind of hangs out in the breeze. I mean, I mean, obviously Wonder Woman is kind of the most notable one there where she just randomly shows up, does one thing, never appears in the movie again. Of course, we know why, but if you're just looking at it from a movie perspective, that's a thread that doesn't go anywhere. Uh, there's just a bunch of, there's a bunch of loose ends, a bunch of threads along those lines that don't, uh, that don't really connect as well as they would if the story was more cohesive because it hadn't been edited to oblivion. Um, the the other thing I would think that really, really stood out to me was the varying levels of CGI they used. I don't know if you noticed this, but there were wildly different levels of CGI in this movie. The flash scenes, when his CGI comes in, it's crisp, it's clear, it's detailed, it's amazing. Most of the other side characters, their CGI looks like something from 20 years ago. Um, like the first thing that popped into my mind, it looked like the, the, uh, agent, uh, what's, oh, now I'm blanking on the agent's name, <laughs> Mr. Anderson, that agent, uh, that scene where he fights like Mr. Smith, where he fights, uh, he fights like a hundred Mr. Smiths mm -hmm. and like looking back on it, like you can see how, how like computer generated it is. Mm -hmm. that's what a lot of the extra characters including supergirl her animation was nowhere nowhere near her cgi level is nowhere near as detailed as as what the flash was so it's very clear that they just did not spend the same amount of money on the cgi for some of the other characters that they did on the flash and it was really really noticeable um my third thing was just, I don't think the Supergirl character was particularly compelling. Yeah. Um, I don't really think she landed much of anything. There wasn't... Well, she was flying around a lot, so... Uh, <laughs> uh, there wasn't a whole lot to in in engender her to you. Yeah. Like, there wasn't a whole lot of reason for you to care about her. The the I think my primary thing was that she just felt like not Superman. Yeah. And that and that was the key thing. Like I didn't I didn't care about her. She was just like kind of Superman but not Superman. And so it just felt like a drop off, like a like like not a like a lesser version of a Superman character. And it's not because it's not because she's Supergirl as opposed to Superman. It's it's just that they didn't they didn't really give you anything to latch onto with her character. Yeah. Um, and that goes back to what I was saying about the the emotional connection, because you, we first see her character as this like weak, um, starved girl who they're trying to help. But like. Like you said, you're not really sure who she is or why she's important. Yeah, so there's really a ton of connection to her character. Um, I, I do want to circle back. One other thing that I really liked was um, we finally got to see Nicolas Cage as Superman. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, uh, give a little, if you remember, give a little bit of the backstory for anyone who's not, who wasn't paying attention there. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the broad, the broad backstory here is that there was a script written for Nicolas Cage to play Superman. And they did a whole bunch of pre production work on it, a whole bunch of stuff, getting ready for it. And then they scrapped the project. So, 
there's this alternate timeline. I mean, it fits in really well with the concept of an alternate timeline movie where Nicolas Cage is actually Superman. Yeah. And yeah. they, so, so in, in the movie itself, there's in flashes like time dimension, reality ball, whatever you want to call what he's in. There's all kinds of different versions of the superheroes flying around and you've got, um, you know, like old Batman with Adam West going on and some of these other things. And then they zoomed in on this one and I don't know about you, but I could tell like from when they first showed him from the back, you could see his long hair. I was like, that's Nicholas Cage Superman. Yeah. And, th and then they showed his face and uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. Interestingly enough, they didn't have, they did not have, uh, they had almost all the renditions of Batman except for they did not have obviously they didn't have val kilmer's version but that's understandable why not and they didn't yeah. do the christian bale version right which interesting yeah and uh i i liked the appearance of the george clooney and, <laughs> and that was pretty awesome misdirection Some people hated it because it wasn't it was supposed to originally be like all the cast reuniting there uh, mm. I thought it was perfect. Yeah. <laughs> I I thought it was I thought it was exactly the right thing to just throw everyone off. And you know, of course, George Clooney exits and his smug and that smug grin that he always yeah. puts on. And I thought I yeah, I thought that was great. I I think one one p uh, one group of people are probably really not happy about how this movie has done. Um, are the people behind Blue Beetle? Yeah, uh, because this is supposed to be the driving like advertisement arm for blue beetle because people don't know who blue beetle is and given how it's done a lot of people still don't know who blue beetle is well on top of which it's like these are some main well-known characters whose dc movies are not doing well what are you possibly going to do with a superhero that nobody's ever heard of with a cast that nobody's ever heard of with the reputation DC has going for it right now. Oh my goodness. Like I can't even imagine what's going to happen with this movie. Yeah. And, and I think it's like probably not going to be anything beyond what it is. It's probably going to be a standalone movie too. Yeah. So yeah, it's uh, I don't, I don't envision it doing super well. Yeah. Which I mean, in reality, I mean, it sucks for these movies but at some point, DC needed to pick a direction and go there. And mm -hmm. it just kind of, I mean, maybe the timing could have been better, but there's always going to be movies in production. And so, you know, the hiring of James Gunn and his immediately getting onto work and, and to changing the direction obviously tanked the, the rest of this year's films for DC. It's just, yeah. I don't know. I don't know that it was avoidable. I think at some point this would have had to be coming one way or the other. Yeah. I'm just, I'm, I'm probably, I think I'm a little more surprised that um, it still exists and they didn't just get rid of it <laughs> like the Wonder Woman movie. So, which, I mean, let's face it, how bad must that Wonder Woman movie have been? Yeah. Yeesh. I mean, 84 was bad enough. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Well, I think we've we've covered enough of that for now. Uh, let's move on to our discussion. And our discussion this week, we're talking about Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. If you've been with us along this podcast, we've been uh, 
reviewing and revisiting each of the Mission Impossible series movies in order and lead up to Dead Reckoning Part 1, which comes out next month in about two weeks or so. So that's fun. Um, And this week we are on Rogue Nation. And so how we'll do this is I'll give you the basic stats to the movie. Uh, We'll cover a little bit of background, basic plots, uh, then we'll get into our thoughts and overviews, strengths, weaknesses. Um, I want to go through the action sequences a little bit and um, we'll do fun tidbits and interesting facts from the movie. Okay. So, uh, Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. Uh, this movie debuted up here. This movie debuted on July 31st, 2015. Uh, The budget was estimated at $150 million. Its opening weekend, it did $55 million. It went on to a domestic gross of $195 million and a worldwide gross of $682 million. Um, This one was directed uh, by Christopher McQuarrie who had come on in uh, the later stages of Ghost Protocol to help them fix some of the script issues. He then took the helm of this one and has directed every single Mission Impossible movie since. He is a longtime collaborator with with Tom Cruise. They did met when they did Valkyrie. Uh, They've also done Jack Reacher. They did uh, uh, Tomorrow... um, Edge of Tomorrow. Edge of Tomorrow. Yep, they did Edge of Tomorrow together. So they they've worked on a lot of projects together. They're uh, they're good friends. Uh, Christian McQuarrie did uh, some of the primary script writing for this, along with Drew Pierce. Uh, the main cast for the movie, obviously Tom Cruise, Simon Pegg, Jeremy Renner, Ving Rains returns. Uh, Rebecca Ferguson makes her entrance into this series. And she has become a continuing character throughout. And Sean Harris uh, plays the bad guy in this one. Uh, the script or the uh, the plot of the movie basically works out. Ethan and his team take on their most impossible mission yet when they have to eradicate the international rogue organization as highly skilled as they are and are committed to destroying the IMF, known as the Syndicate. Uh, so a little bit of background on this one. Uh, McQuarrie said that he wanted to write the best female character in the series. Because uh, that's one thing that this this uh, series has had is a rotating cast of female characters who don't stick around. So he wanted to write the best female character in the series. Frankly, mission accomplished. Uh McCoy also had the idea initially on that he wanted to split up the team. Uh, so throughout most of the movie, you have kind of two odd couple pairs together. Uh, you have the oldest member of the cast with the newest member of the cast and Renner uh, and Ving Rains were together for most of the movie. And then Simon Pegg and Tom Cruise were. Uh, McCoy said initially he kind of almost viewed it as like an action date movie. Because you have like the scene, the opera house scene is kind of like the first date between uh, Tom Cruise's character and Rebecca Ferguson's character. The motorcycle scene it ends up being their breakup and moving forward on that. 
Um, this uh, this movie did a lot of really, really interesting things. It went to a number of different countries, uh, shot in London, shot in Morocco, uh, were some of the primary locations on that one. Um, it took 127 days to film, which was over the amount, but they still came in pretty much right on budget. And the one of the other things is he said he didn't want another rift inside the IMF because that he felt like that had kind of been done for quite a while. <laughs> and so um, that's where he was at with this movie. All right. So let's get into our basic thoughts and our overview. What what stood out to you? Um, what are some of your overall thoughts about it? So my overall thought, and this is a little bit of a spoiler because we're going to we're going to get to this eventually. But yeah. Um, I might as well say it now because we're on it. This is my favorite Mission Impossible movie. It's not even close. Oh, interesting. Okay, all right. I, I think, think right from the start, I like it. I, I think a lot of it is because of how much I love music. Mm. And the scene in the opera house, I think, I would argue, is the best scene in Mission Impossible in any it of is, the movies. It is up there. It because the just movie. the coordination between the music happening in the background um with mul- three like three different areas of action all happening at the same time mm-hmm. and you're coordinating them so you see what's actually happening from a broad perspective towards the end of the scene um and then the just the fallout from that scene throughout the rest of the entire movie yeah um i think it's a br- i think it's brilliantly written um and brilliantly shot in a way that um, you're you're invested in everything that's happening in that scenario, and there it's that's not an e- that's really not an easy thing to pull off in an action scene. What they did, because a lot of the action is actually really quiet, mm-hmm. which is another very unique and fascinating thing. And I think that that alone is kind of like a hallmark of Mission Impossible. Yeah, because a lot of it is like sub- subterfuge and cloak and dagger kind of stuff, not these huge explosions all the time yeah uh, and, and uh the song the other thing that helps it for me is that the song in the opera which i looked up how to pronounce the opera name because um if you look up how to pronounce the name of the opera which is turandot yeah uh, online you'll see like there's four different videos about how to pronounce it and they're all different <laughs> because people can't figure out how to pronounce it so i'm just gonna go with turandot because that's one of the ones they said yeah but there are several ways to pronounce this word, and it's it's really it's fascinating because it's how it's an Italian opera, but it's written by a German composer or something like that. There's some there's some kind of multi ethnic thing going on here that people are you know they claim you know language rights over it, so they pronounce it the way they think it should be pronounced, and then they argue with people about how it should be pronounced. And um, I I just love how the he uses the score to set the scene, the background for everything that's happening. Yeah. In the action. And yeah, for me, it's, it's just, a, it is a top class movie scene, in any movie. Mm-hmm. Um, Good. Yeah. So, so that's, I mean, I, I just really, I really like this movie a lot, a lot. Since you jumped into the Vienna scene, let's just let's just have it out with the Vienna scene, and then we'll yeah. come back to the rest of your memorable or the rest of your uh, the rest of your overall thoughts. Uh, so 
fun some it's a it's a it really is an amazing scene it's it's so well done it was the first one they did they also didn't finally finish it up until literally the last day of shooting this Hmm. this thing took that long um the actors in the opera were the actual members of the vienna opera so they did not like they had the full cast there and apparently like they only had like two days to get that the that part of this the shoot the shooting done and the uh the opera team came in and were like super awesome about it and like got into full character and just really loved really loved working with it um all of the backstage stuff on the pulleys and the levers and all that stuff that was all done in a completely different studio hmm uh, back in California. So none of that stuff actually happened at the opera. So it's fascinating how seamlessly they were able to weave those, weave those things in. Um, this was originally supposed to be the opening sequence in the movie, but, uh, the, uh, one of the other memorable scenes in there, the plane ride thing, they didn't have anywhere else to put it. And so the plane ride ended up superseding the opera as the initial Mm. opener. Um, The opera scene is actually like kind of a two levels deep reference to the Hitchcock movie, The Man Who Knew Too Much, where there's also a classic opera scene. Uh, Macquarie said that he actually got the idea off a Scorsese commercial, but the Scorsese said that that commercial was based off of Hitchcock's The Man Who Knew Too Much. (laughs) So it kind of is indirectly slash directly tied into The Man Who Knew Too Much from Hitchcock. Um, the iconic scene, like probably the, the iconic moment of that scene is, uh, Rebecca Ferguson, when she puts her leg up and then, and then gets in the shooting pose. Uh, they did that on one of the last days of shooting. That was one of the things they got at the very end. They, uh, they were like, "Ah, we need, we need something else. We don't quite have it how we wanted. And so that was one of the last things they shot. It's really honestly, one of the most iconic moments of the movie. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, going back to this, you know, some what what I thought were strengths of the movie. Uh, you mentioned it, uh, Rebecca Ferguson's character, mm. um, actually having a female strong female character who's not a damsel in distress. Uh, and I think I think she's written fantastically. And he was very explicit about the fact that he did not want her character to be the one who needed rescuing necessarily. Yeah. yeah, and so you've got you've got a broad spectrum of, you know, her needing help, her helping people, um, her being actively involved in solutions to things, not quite knowing her entire motivations at the beginning of things, um, wondering if she is a good or bad character until it's revealed who she actually is. Um, I, there's a lot of intrigue around her character, and mm-hmm. I think it's pulled off really well. Yeah, she's first of all, Rebecca Ferguson is amazing in this role. She is really, really, really good. Um, it's one of the best female acting performances in this type of movie that I think I've ever seen, which is what makes her character so compelling. Like she's personally engaging, but her character is just so well acted and so well written because like you said, like you're never quite sure she's kind of playful and kind of dangerous. She's kind of on your side, but can you really trust her? Like she's intriguing. Uh, you you respect her, but you're not sure whether you should like her. Like you like her, but you're not sure if you should. Like that that back and forth they do with her character is is 
is so well done because if it's not written properly, then the character feels fake and it feels like you're trying to pull something over on the audience. And if it's not acted well, then that complexity will never come through. And so that combination of being an extremely well-written character and and Rebecca Ferguson's acting is is just phenomenal. And I think that's one of the reasons why why this character continues on where a lot of the other female characters didn't. Yeah, I, I mean, it's I don't think it's any fault of like uh, Tandy Newton yeah. um, for for her character. I, it's just there is a world of difference between how that character and this character are written. Yeah, and there's only so much you can do. Um, when you're acting to make up that gap yeah yeah and and it's interesting how they play around with the connection between those two but they can't really go anywhere with it in this movie in part because there's still like the invisible overhang of his wife <laughs> mm-hmm. and so that takes them until the, the next movie to kind of resolve what's going on there and all of that but honestly i think she is the character of Ilsa Faust is the best character outside of Ethan Hunt in the entire series. So that's my personal thought on that. All right. What are you have any other strengths you want to hit? Yeah, 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 yeah. I think, I think character complexity was really, really strong in this one. Uh, You have, you have Simon Pegg's character who is, you know, who is pretending to not be Ethan's friend, but kind of is, um, who's playful Benji, but he also goes and lectures Ethan Hunt about his role in it. Uh, There's just, uh, you have Jeremy Renner's character, who um, is kind of like begrudgingly on board with all of this. And at one point, they actually make you think that he might have betrayed the team. Um, Because there's just that level of complexity with the way the characters are written about their motivations and about what's what's bringing them and and like they just drop they basically just drop a big stress bomb into the middle of the team and then watch as they all react and so the the feeling of how they react under stress and under pressure feels genuine and so like that level of complexity i think was really well done in the story um that balance of humor and action is back in this movie which is really cool and really well done uh, there's a lot of cool, quick moments of Ethan Hunt, like looking and making quick comments, like like the shrug on the plane at the beginning when the the bad guy sees him, <laughs> or uh, or when he first meets Rebecca Ferguson, and they beat up all the guys. He looks at her, he's like, "We don't know each other, right?" <laughs> like like those little those little quick subtle moments um, were something that they started with Brad Bird's version Ghost Protocol that really carried forward. Um, I thought the uh, the finale in London was very cinematic, and and was really good, uh, as well as the the kind of chase through London uh, really reminded me of the Prague scene, mm. at the beginning of uh, the first movie, kind of how you have the fog rolling in and the you know like the old world streets and that sort of stuff it was kind of cool. Yeah, I I think if you're looking at it, you know, from a uh, strictly bird's eye perspective. You can tell that um, Macquarie knows what to do with this franchise. Yeah. And when you have someone who is heading things, who knows the direction they're going in. Um, another example, this would be like James Gunn with the Guardians of the Galaxy. Mm-hmm. Like when you have one who fully knows the ins and outs of 
the story and the characters and um, what he's trying to do with it. Uh, it's really apparent. And I think there's no doubt that it was the right person to turn this series over to based on what he's, where he's gone with it, starting with this one. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I honestly don't like the, no movie is perfect right but yeah. there's there's not a lot in this movie i can nitpick um and that might be why, why it's my favorite one in the series because there's intrigue there's action there's humor there's suspense there's actual relevant and believable emotion in the movie um you know it, i don't know if you can ask much more of this genre of movie mm-hmm. really. um do you see anything that you i I don't have so much gripes about this. I think some of the things feel like, like I'll give you an example. The, um, the fact that in the opera scene, they end up killing the Austrian prime minister. That feels like, like it should be a bigger event than it is. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like it's not, it's just not. And, and it's funny, like you see some of the behind scenes, things that they were doing there's actually i don't know where it is but there's like an actual conversation at some point while they're filming this between mcquarrie and tom cruise of like wait why does the prime minister die wait how is it die? <laughs> and like like tom cruise literally just makes something up and mccory is like oh yeah i'll write that down and like that becomes the motivation for it so there's some because the way the movies are produced where they have like in mind the action sequences and they kind of write a story around the action sequences is sometimes some of those threads don't get picked up like the way they would in a different story. And the the Austrian prime minister is one of them, but hmm. honestly, it's a minor complaint <laughs> Yeah, in the, in the scheme of what the movie is. Um, so not a ton. Some people have said it's a little bit complex, but that, ah, you know, learn to follow a story. <laughs> um, so let's just kind of go through the, the action sequences a little bit. Obviously, the the movie opens with the uh, the crazy stunt of Tom Cruise hanging off a plane, uh, which is nuts. By the way, it's absolutely nuts. <laughs> um, even if you are even if you are tethered to the plane, which I'm sure he was, he was. It's still a ridiculous thing for a, a stunt man to do, let alone an actual actor. Yeah, which he did this. Like, this is not a stunt guy. He actually did this. In fact, he did it eight times. They filmed that eight times. Wow. And you, this is one of the things. I, I We've talked about this before, like, you, why you should own movies. You should own movies like Rogue Nation so that you can watch the behind the scenes on how they did this. Like, it's insane. He was saying that, like, um, they had to make sure, carefully sweep the runway because of his position on the plane like if a pebble got caught in the engine and got shot back at him, it would basically be coming at the speed of a bullet. And at one point he did get hit with a little object and he thinks he broke a rib. It was like embedded in his skin, (laughs) (laughs) but they were also having to film like outside and like, like it was like 25 degree weather. And in order to get the shot of them, like, like the steep angle of them pulling away from earth, there was like a very narrow window where like the angle they had to, to go at where like 
you know, any more steep and like even the cables he was on would like shred. <laughs> oh my. So it was, it was, it was utterly ridiculous. Uh, the scene, the level of complexity, the, what they had to do for it to get this um, just crazy, just crazy stuff. Um, then we talked uh, we talked uh, quite a bit about the opera sequence uh, and the opera action on that one. Um, we also had the mo the vault, the underwater vault. What did you make of what did you make of the uh, kind of the the biggest impossible mission of them breaking into the uh, the underwater computer terminal there? I think in some ways that if you want to make an argument about something being hard to follow or not quite understand, that would probably be the the one scene I would mm -hmm. point out because it's so high level. Yeah. Uh, what they're actually trying to do. Like we need to do this so that we do this, yeah. so we do this. And so and now not... we have to do this, this, and this to make this happen. Yeah. There's like six levels of trying to and navigate through that. That's not something like that, that setting, that scenario is not something that most people can conceptualize. Um, it's not something that we have really a lot of interaction with or mm -hmm. understand um, like cooling for a computer system yeah, uh, of that magnitude. Cause we're just not around that um, yeah. most lay people. Uh, so it's fascinating. And I'm like, it's just one of those scenes where it's kind of like, Oh yeah, sure. I'm sure that's uh, what happened. And uh, that's how that works. And uh, yeah, <laughs> they did a good job. <laughs> So this one is another one where the special features are just fantastic to watch. Um, Tom Cruise and Rebecca Ferguson trained with a an underwater like breath hold guy who developed a technique for the military. And so they spent significant amounts of time training to be able to hold their breath for long periods of time underwater. Tom Cruise, of course, being Tom Cruise, got to six minutes. <laughs> That's so crazy. As a result, that gave them tremendous amounts of flexibility to be able to film these scenes. Because a lot of other times you're having to do it like 20, 30 second pops. Like they could do it for like several minutes at a time and film this to get a much more cohesive feel to it. So they basically built a big tank for them to go through. Um, now, they built all of the things that he physically touched uh, but then the rest of the atmosphere was CGI, including the swing arm. The swing arm was also CGI that they put in later. Uh, but um, both him and Rebecca Ferguson trained for a very long time uh, for this. And just crazy amount of complexity for this. And then the, the director and the stuntmen were getting super nervous because Cruz was staying under for so long. <laughs> and they kept wanting to bring him up. He's like, dude, I'm fine. I'm fine. I can gonna keep going. Just Keep getting the shot. He's like, I'm not comfortable letting you do this. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So interesting. It was it was a really interesting thing. All right. So next we move from that one to the uh the car slash motorcycle chase scene. Uh what did you make of that one? Uh so it's it's uh like you said, it's it's a really good action sequence. Um but I, I think it takes a back seat to the other ones that we talked about. And it's no fault of its own. I mean, it's still really well done and executed well. Um, there's just other things that stand out more in this yeah. movie. Uh, they actually had a car cannon for the scene where the car goes flipping over a bunch of times in mm. a row. 
uh, so they actually had a car cannon that they would shoot an actual car out of. They were only able to use it three times before people started lodging like complaints about cracks in the buildings nearby. <laughs> so they had to shut it down. Uh, but they destroyed um, 37 BMWs in this, in the making of this movie. And wow. BMW was a sponsor, which is why all the all the cars are BMWs. And they said that's the only reason we could afford to destroy 37 BMWs. <laughs> um, but they actually sent Tom Cruise back to stunt driving school, even though he's done a bunch of this to kind of relearn how to do all this. And in the special features, Tom Cruise is saying he was so nervous because Simon Pegg was in the car with him. And he was just so concerned that he would hurt Simon Pegg. <laughs> and simon Pegg didn't really realize what he was doing and so he didn't realize how dangerous it was <laughs> uh, but the scene where the car goes down the steps this was kind of fascinating they actually built ramps over the steps to make that possible and then edited the ramps out in a post-production that's pretty cool yeah yeah uh, and Rebecca did a, almost all of the her own uh, motorcycle stunt driving. And of course, Tom Cruise did his going at 180 miles an hour with no helmet on because, you know, Tom Cruise. Because he's Maverick. That's why. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then at the. Uh, at the end, basically. Um, well, there's kind of two other there's kind of two other main scenes where they where they kind of break in and like kidnap the prime minister and then uh, the finale where Benji has the bomb strapped to him. Mm -hmm. Any any thoughts on any of those? I think uh, just a, an overall thought is that um, Sean Harris's uh, portrayal of the bad guy, I think, is one of the better bad guys mm -hmm. in the series. And I think um, I relate him in a lot of ways to Philip Seymour Hoffman character, just that more of the quiet calculated um you know you never quite know exactly what the motivation is um and what they're capable of and yeah. i think i think i think just the questioning of what is this person actually able to do is uh mm -hmm. what makes a bad guy mo most intriguing yeah yeah cool um so a few facts and interesting tidbits there's a lot of cool behind the scenes stuff on this one uh, the yellow dress that Rebecca Ferguson wears, they they made 12 different versions hand-sewn for this because they had a different one for her like walking in. They had a different one for her firing the gun, a different one for her like sliding down the building. Hmm. They did a slightly different version for all of these. So there were actually 12 different versions of that. Um, during the motorcycle chase scene, they actually, some of the footage is actually GoPro footage which I thought was kind of cool. Um, the character of Ilsa actually changed multiple times. And when Chris McCory originally wrote it, he wrote it with Haley Atwell in mind. And he just, he just felt like it wasn't quite right. And they didn't quite get, uh, it didn't seem like the right time, which is kind of ironic because now Haley Atwell is in mission impossible in dead reckoning. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's see what else here. Um, the character of Atlee was actually wasn't created until halfway through production because they couldn't figure out how to get like how to get Rebecca Ferguson from one place to another. So they invented the character of At Atlee in order to make that work. 
So you'd think a character like that would have been uh, a little bit further out conceived, but this is yeah. possible. Um, they they were basically out of money by the time they were coming to the finale of the movie. So they wrote the finale of the movie based around what they had lying around, basically, which is why he ends up in a glass tank. Because <laughs> they were like, okay, how can we create something really cool without having to spend a whole lot of money on it? And so that's how they did that. Uh, that bomb scene, uh, Simon Pegg is literally holding up cue cards for Tom Cruise because they wrote the scene so last minute. <laughs> And he was literally having to be a teleprompter and like like raising raising the card up so that Tom Cruise's eye line wouldn't change as he's reading the cue cards. <laughs> <laughs> um, they finished this film five days before the premiere. <laughs> That's five wild. days. They finished this film five days before the premiere. Um, the the cool record store at the beginning is entirely fake tom cruise had them build it and he said i want you to make the best record store you possibly can make to the point where people want to go visit it but i, I do want to go visit it i, I know it. it's such a cool looking place <laughs> uh now this is kind of interesting uh this came out the same year as rogue one as star wars rogue one but Star Wars did not clear the Disney did not clear the name Rogue One past Mission Impossible, which they should have. And so um, they actually Mission Impossible, the studio Paramount could have actually sued Disney to prevent them from releasing their movie. Hmm. Um, but this movie was actually moved up. Rogue Nation was moved up to avoid another Star Wars movie. But the two studios came to a deal where basically they would not promote Rogue One. Disney would not promote Rogue One until six months after the release of Rogue Nation. So they were actually not allowed to mention it in anything else prior to six months after the release so that was that was the kind of the the deal they struck and negotiated between the two studios so there you have it that is mission impossible rogue nation uh any final comments no other than that's a great movie you should watch it you should watch it absolutely so we'll be back probably next week maybe two weeks uh with um our breakdown of fallout so uh we'll close real quickly with our watch list what did you watch this week well we have two weeks so i watched uh the flash and elemental in the theater um enjoyed both thought they both deserved maybe to do a little bit better than they did um i agree with ryan's overall statement that i was entertained by the flash uh, i think it's worth watching um just unfortunate you know the climate of the studio and the climate of the crazy news around the main actor is just kind of what it is. Um, I also, this last week watched uh, a couple movies. I watched Indiana Jones and uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Nice. So I'm trying to get through the series before the new one comes out. Um, so we watched that one first. Um, I also watched uh, Renfield again, which is now streaming. Doc. 
Okay. Uh, a nice, funny, subversive kind of dark horror slash comedy movie and has Nicolas Cage doing Nicolas Cage things. <laughs> so like Nicolas Cage do Nicolas Cage things. He is oh he is very over the top in this movie, which is my favorite version of Nicolas Cage. Of course. <laughs> and uh we watched another movie last night before Renfield. Um why can't I remember what it was? Anyway, oh Spider Spider Man uh Homecoming. Okay. Uh, last night as well. So yeah. um the first uh Spider Man, full Spider Man movie with Tom Holland. Yeah. And it and one very fascinating thing about it is um Donald Glover, who is also known as uh Childish Gambino rapper, um, is in this movie and he plays a character that is a main character in Spider Man uh into the Spider Verse, which is the Prowler character, um Uncle Aaron, Miles Morales's uncle. He is actually that character in Spider-Man Homecoming. But it's a very, like, it, it's almost like a behind-the-scenes kind of reference. Yeah. Um, only if you knew who Miles Morales was would you get that that's who that was supposed to be. Um, but what's intriguing and fascinating about that is Donald Glover is in the new Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. <laughs> which kind of ties it all together and it's just a really funny little, like, Easter egg for people who follow that uh, story. Definitely. Uh, so the main one I watched this week that I'll reference is There Will Be Blood. Mm. This is to fulfill my weekly movie challenge of having to watch a movie with a sentence, a full sentence in the title. Um, I am pretty sure I saw There Will Be Blood like when it first came out. I'm also pretty sure that I haven't seen it since and I barely remembered anything. <laughs> it felt like I was watching it for the first time. Um yeah, really fascinating movie. Um, yeah, the depth of uh, <laughs> the depth of psychopathy, if you would, <laughs> to to Daniel Day Lewis's character in this movie is uh, is quite stunning. And uh, um, you know, of course, this was one of his many best actor wins. <laughs> uh, Paul Thomas Anderson directed. Yeah, so. if you want to feel better about yourself, watch. Daniel Day Lewis playing a crazy person because mm-hmm. I realize that you're actually pretty normal. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know what's funny is I had not seen Paul Dano in almost anything. I I think like the first time I really remember thinking about him was was in uh, the Batman, and then mm-hmm. since I'm like, oh wait, he's in that, and he's in that, and he's in that, and he's in that. It's like I just hadn't noticed Paul Dano before. Mm-hmm. so yeah so there will be blood check it out all right that is the show thank you everyone for tuning into film for fans make sure you go to filmforfans.com we have the reviews the written reviews up for uh the first three of the mission impossible movies and rogue nation will be coming this week and so uh or ghost protocol coming this week and hopefully rogue nation very soon and uh tell your friends and like the podcast Thank you, and until next time, enjoy the movies.